0: And those relaxing
1: vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to
0: elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
1: Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 303. Uh, This is a very exciting episode because there is a first in this episode, which I'll get to in a minute. But I will say, if you live in places around America and uh, you have a means of transportation or know how to get a means of transportation uh, then you should come see uh, any of the stand-up shows that I'm doing around the country in uh, cities like Tacoma and in Bloomington, Indiana and in Denver and Baltimore and DC uh, and there's tons more. Go to Nerdist.com slash calendar come out and see the stand-up show uh, build the new hour of comedy hugging people along the way it's a tour of hugs and i i don't really know what um smugs smugs is a con i guess a comedy thing could be smug hugs and smugs god no i hate it i just hate it uh all right you're not gonna get a rhyming tour name but just come out and say hi uh, at, any, at any of the shows uh, around the country. I'd like to thank Squarespace.com for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. Uh, they've launched a new content management system. So from a technical perspective, it's an entirely new product with a different code base. So you have the latest web technologies, HTML5, CSS3, J- JavaScript foundations. You have speed, you have flexibility if you want to uh, uh, develop the website further in the future. Um, from a user perspective, the new Squarespace has the best mobile experiences. New templates with mobile-ready... Uh, responsive designs Um, they're seamlessly baked into the master template and images are automatically versioned seven ways to accommodate viewing editing and updating on any size mobile device which you need now because mobile devices there's no standard some of them are as big as plates and other ones are uh, the size of your tiny hand. So, Squarespace is now drag and drop. There's a new page builder. Uh, it's it's easier for novices and experts alike. Um, so, I highly recommend Squarespace. Uh, better social media integration. Really well designed. So, you're going to get a free trial if you go to squarespace.com slash nerdist. Sign up for a free account. No credit card needed. Try it out. Start building your website. And if you decide to purchase, use the offer code nerdist 8 which is different than the other ones that we've given you before. It changes, and you're going to get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. That includes monthly and annual plans. And don't forget about their free domain registration with the annual plan subscriptions. That is squarespace.com, offer code NERDIST8. Okay, so the big new thing that we've never done before on this podcast is... Uh, via Skype. I've always insisted that people be in person because uh, usually it's just better when you can see their faces and you kind of know where everyone in the conversation is. And um, you know, this happened a couple times in this in this episode where we would all talk at the same time, like a conference call, and then everyone kind of like stops for a second. And they're like, "No, you go. No, you go." But um, but I absolutely could not let this opportunity go. Uh, Warren Ellis agreed to come on the podcast. Very prolific writer of things which you may have read. He's written all over Marvel and DC and Transmetropolitan is a book uh, that he wrote that's huge. Um, then also uh, Freak Angels is a really cool web comic that he did, uh, and then and then released it in print. Uh, not by the way, I do want to point this out: Warren Ellis that we are talking to is not the violinist from Nick Cave's band. Um, we tease him about that a little bit, which he took remarkably well because I imagine at this point, getting asked if he is in Nick Cave's uh, band is probably his version of "Did you fuck Jenny McCarthy?" For me, so uh, I, uh, I appreciated that he was so good-natured about it. But uh, really great guy. Uh, we we skyped him in from England, and there were uh, only a couple little technical glitches. Like once we kind of got into the rhythm of it, it worked. And uh, the call dropped eh, Maybe two or three or four times um, We sniffed those parts out Because why do you want to hear us going What did we lose him I think we lost him Wait should we call him No you call him Oh Joan's going to go take a shit While we are trying to get the, the line back up Which happened uh, So we cut all that part out Um, Because you don't need Jonah Shitting in your life Warren Ellis, by the way, uh, has a new book That has just come out called Gun Machine Which you should absolutely pick up Pick it up on Amazon or wherever you buy your books um, Or get the audio version of or whatever But it just came out a few days ago And you should really, really, really read it Uh, Dark, awesome, uh, super cool Warren Ellis is prolific and awesome and British And he stayed up really late So he could talk to us because there's a time difference on the spinning orb we call planet Earth. Here's the Nerdist podcast, number 303, with Warren Ellis.
0: Now entering Nerdist.com.
1: Hello, Warren, it's Chris Hardwick. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Very good. Oh, my gosh. This is exciting. You're our our first Skyped podcast in almost three years. (laughs) I mean, three years since we started. We've never done a Skype podcast before. You are our first.
2: Okay, so I'll expect disaster to strike at any moment.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this has been great. We only wanted it to be a minute long because we don't want anything to go south, so thank you for being here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but honestly, we're, like, we've, we've already started recording. Is there anything you want us to prepare, or are you good? Is it okay that we've started?
2: No, I'm I'm good. I'm just gonna warn you that I'm very tired, so I might be a little more subdued than I might be. And if my voice does trail
1: off, let me know. Okay, no worries. Um, we can all take breaks and get up and do some type of calisthenics to get our uh, <laughs> our pulse rates up. And then, do you want us Moving to? Do you want us really to really s- send you some God. coffee?
2: Do I have to move as well? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wiggle a toe. So we, I don't remember signing
2: up for moving or any of that shit.
1: <laughs> this is the this is the Nerdist Movement podcast. Um <laughs> we just like uh, you know, just natural
3: movements, man. It's just it's really a groovy experience. Keep the blood flowing, you know. Get up every once in a while, every twenty minutes.
1: So here on the podcast there's myself and then Jonah Ray. Hello. And then hi, uh, hi. and then our friend Kyle Clark is here as well. Howdy there. Alright, Kyle. So um let's uh Let's at least first mention that uh, it, you put out a sort of thing on Twitter where you said, you know, I'm thinking about doing some podcasts again. And then instantly everyone was like, Chris, what, are you going to do it? And I was like, shut up, guys. Just give me a minute. I got to figure out how I'm going to ask. Uh, <laughs> and then I think I just tweeted at you and you just wrote back and you were like, yeah, hey, great. Like it was so I built it up to be this like we do. We've done this for a couple of years and we, but we, we promise we won't you know, mishandled the situation, and you were very sweet about it, so I appreciate that.
2: Yeah, but you were also a, pretty much the only person who wrote back, so...
1: <laughs> <laughs> that can't be true. Are you serious? That can't be true. No one ever uh, gets to to pretty girl. Actually, yeah. And then I was worried because Kirkman, Robert Kirkman, said something like, "Oh, you're not going to go on that podcast, sorry. And I'm like, "Oh, please! If Warren doesn't understand your acerbic sense of humor, <laughs>
2: are you? Do you know? Do you know? Uh, do you know I, Robert pretty well? I, I don't pay attention to Kirkman. Because, <laughs> uh,
4: it's a good way to go.
2: Thank My, you. His voice is so muffled from <laughs> being so deep inside that money bin, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That I, I simply assume he's drunk on gold coins or something. <laughs> uh,
1: They're rum-dipped gold coins. It's an ancient pirate's booty that he is, uh, <laughs> that he's sucking on. But where are you? Where are you right now? Are you at your home?:
2: I'm at home in South End-on-Sea in Essex, which is southeast England.
1: What's the weather like?
2: Um much as you would expect. Dark, grim, rainy, cold.
1: Now, Warren, I Lots know. Lot
2: stock dying of exposure.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: Pirates. Yep, Johnny Johnny yep. Depp doing a uh, Keith Richards impersonation. I imagine.
2: Um, uh, I am guessing that's a reference to a film I haven't seen. <laughs> it's but a. This is actually old pirate country here. The pirates came from East Anglia, they came from the South End area because we have lots of uh, creeks and small rivers that the old inland revenue cutters couldn't get down. Um, you drive literally just five miles towards the coast and you will still find pubs. Full of men with grey beards, one eye, and gold teeth. Um, and <laughs> as you walk into the pub, they recognize you as a stranger, possibly from the
1: future.
4: <laughs> but now they're just cool drunk. And the pub one. will
1: Both. go silent until you turn in and leave again. You should just go in and start telling them things that are going to happen hundreds of years from now.
2: I would, but I'm fairly sure they're all armed.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they can get one shot off, and then they have to. It takes like five minutes to reload. No, it's right. like when you
2: go down to Cornwall, you don't want to mention things like owning electric toasters because you don't want to be burned
1: at the stake. <laughs> <laughs> there is a witch burner. But I I, 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 you know, we of course were recording this before. The apocalypse, of course, is going to happen somewhere around the 21st. But but England, but you being in England, you're no stranger to that, because if I'm not mistaken, the Daleks or the Cybermen attack pretty much every Christmas Eve. (laughs) (laughs) And you guys just rebuild. It's funny how Christmas just became the apocalypse on British television. (laughs) I always feel bad for London. It's like, you know, every Christmas you get attacked by the Daleks. And then you spend another year rebuilding Big Ben, or what have you, or pulling.
2: <laughs> I thought about this, but then I thought Russell. Russell Davis run that show for so long, and he's Welsh.
3: That I realized uh,
2: that This president himself
1: was destroying London, <laughs> that's in a way that was palatable.
3: He just hates
2: merry go
1: rounds. <laughs> I guess that's what it is. Every
2: uh, year he gets to sit down and say, "It's time to write my fuck the English." <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's almost like a, it's almost like 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 an apocalypse sim that you would run on a computer like this time I'll start it in the Thames the next time I'll start it over on this side of town and just watch well, it spread I,
2: I'm, what, I had, what I did notice on that show is every time there was a new uh, very recognizable building in London that was kind of what they decided to set fire to or fill with dialects. <laughs> so I'm waiting for one about the, the Olympic Stadium now
1: Oh, oh that's right well, maybe... which,
2: which, from a distance, just does look like a giant radio dish.
1: <laughs> were you in town? Did you, were you there for the Olympics?
2: I was in the country for the Olympics. I'll put it that way. Sure. <laughs> I went nowhere near the actual site itself. But still managed to honest, get on track. Was, what was the point in going? You'd be sitting... If you sat in the cheap seats there, you're like a mile away... From the middle of the stadium where they're doing stuff. And really, is that a good way to watch archery?
1: <laughs> I don't know if there is a good way to watch archery.
2: Oh, there are good ways to watch archery, but it involves you being close enough to be able to see the fucking arrows and things.
1: <laughs> well, then it's a two-day trip. You have to bring supplies to get from central London to the the Olympic Stadium.
2: Oh, oh my God. You'd have to bring supplies to... to survived the trip from the olympic station train station to mm. the stadium
1: mm. yeah i was in i was in london last... it's
2: only ten minutes away but uh, the, the the olympic stadium sits on the train line that i used to get into london from here so i've been watching it being built or most of the time not being built over the last three years
1: I was there last year and I just the traffic was so bad and did just in this in the center of town. I was like, and there's no Olympics yet. What happens when there's an Olympics? Is it just over for everyone? Is there can- I'm told cannibalism?
2: During the Olympics, the travel, the traffic situation in central London was marvelous because there was no bugger there.
1: Oh, yeah. Everyone was afraid
2: to go. Three quarters of the cabbies I talked to in London went on holiday.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, well there's no bugger in london what am i driving around in my cab
1: for that was like here in los angeles they shut down one of the major freeways and we had what was called carmageddon where which was supposed to like paralyze the city for a weekend and in the end it was great because everyone thought that it, 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 everyone was going to be out so no one came and it was good fine weekend. it was a really good weekend. it was fine but we at least we got to scare people with the oh, weird sorry. traffic-based LA, tactic. LA and traffic.
2: Um, one of the funniest things I ever saw were people in Los Angeles when it rained once. <laughs> oh, we can't handle that. We. Can... I'm talking of the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's I that's our apocalypse. Nine o'clock in the morning because I had a meeting. I looked out the window and there's a mild drizzle.
1: <laughs>
2: Switched on the TV and it literally blared "Storm
1: <laughs> yeah. We love making graphics for things a graphic
2: here. Graphic together already. Yeah. Uh, um that I think look like the the logo from Armageddon. Yep.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right.
2: they have got helicopters out and reporters in hazmat suits because water is falling from the
3: sky.
2: Oh, we can't handle it. We can't. It's and, like yeah. Traffic was backed up all over the city. And I'm like I'm looking at it, so I'm like, I wouldn't even put a fucking coat on to go out there. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, if it drizzles, the general sentiment is like, okay, we can, this will be okay, we'll be okay. And then it starts raining harder. Like, get the kids out of school. Let's get in the fucking shelters. Get in the survival (laughs) shelters. Yeah,
2: yeah, I could see cars going by and there were were canned goods
3: in the passenger seat, (laughs) you know. Also, no one here knows how to drive when the roads are wet. And so they go about five miles an hour and just because they're so scared. Well, a lot
1: of the roads were built to collect rainwater. And so <laughs> the roads get really bad, it's baffling. Plus We're... all the
3: smog in the sky, it just drops down and it's just oily everywhere.
1: Yeah, it's not, a, not, it's not a good I'm city. not a fan of LA at the best of
2: times, but I've got to admit, that day was pretty funny. Yeah.
1: <laughs> How often do you get out to, to, to the States even?
2: Um, I haven't actually been out since 2010, um, which is the longest time I've been without a trip for some while. I'm usually out there once a year.
1: Well, that's not bad. Are you no, yeah, here? Oh, go ahead. This is the trick with Skype: is that four people at once will go. <laughs> no, you go. No, no, you go. No, I'm sorry, you go. It's a four
3: way stop full of polite people. <laughs> <laughs> no, you go. Yeah. yeah, but I'm usually out
2: there for something once a year. But uh, the last couple of years a bit a bit crazy, so I haven't had a chance.
4: Um, last
2: time I was out there was doing the PR for Red. I think. Mm.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was 2010, right? 2010,
2: 2011.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about. Uh, I mean, I, I did. They just sent me your book. I got Gun Machine in the mail a day and a half ago. Oh, and, no. uh, well, it wasn't. It wasn't their fault. I was gone for eleven days, so uh, right. when I got back, it was it was waiting for me. But um, so right, Gun... I'll
2: let them leave, then.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to assault anyone. You don't have to. Uh, you can retract the claws, Wolverine.
2: That's good. As I did mention, I'm tired.
1: <laughs> do you get cranky when you're tired, or do you just get like,
2: I don't fucking want to deal with it? Oh, I get cranky when I wake up. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the whole five years of Transmetropolitan is basically just me first thing in the morning. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I was actually thinking about that driving over here, like with Transmetropolitan, that I think more than any other like Vertigo book of that time period, it's really the one that you look at and go, "That's just the writer sort of throwing stuff out uh, about what's going on." Like
2: um, it is, and it isn't. I mean, if there is any of me in it, then it's it's the absolute worst parts <laughs> of um I don't agree with Spider Jerusalem about a lot of things. Really? And I wouldn't give the bastard house for him anyway. He's horrible.
4: <laughs> but you love him so much when you're reading it, too. You're just like, this... It, it's it's weird. Like, you sort of bond with this guy despite going, like, I don't know that I want to be his friend, but I want to watch him all the time. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's... Um, how, I mean, how would you... I mean how would you describe him to someone who hadn't read the thing without making him sound even worse than he is because he is unbridled
1: id. <laughs> is every... Uh, uh-huh. I mean, you you have such a... I mean, if anyone who's not familiar with you, it just does even a minor search. They just see essentially a mountain. I mean, like the amount of work that you've generated in the past couple of decades is pretty remarkable. And, you know, when you're when you're taking on different projects, do you... Do you, are you just pulling little bits of yourself for these different projects? Or are you kind of in this zone where it just, you're like, well, that's going to be that and that's going to be that. I mean, do you, at this point in your writing career, do you even have to dig around too much? Or is it just so a part of your routine now?
2: Uh, yeah, uh, Yes and no. I mean, all writing boils down to pulling out little bits of yourself. I think that's unavoidable. Um... <clears throat> I mean, sometimes you sit down to just write a yarn or write about the things you're interested in. But if um, it's a longer project or you had a specific goal when doing it, then you find yourself writing about something to find out what you think about it or writing about something in order to get at the root of what made you interested about it in the first place, uh, discovering what it is about something that made it stick in your head um i mean i've I've said it before i mean it can be likened to an autopsy in some respects
1: yeah i love that i love that idea because i think a lot of people you know like young writers maybe think of writing as oh i just have to make this story and i have to make it make sense but i think there's something really nice and kind of romantic about it's a discovery process, and even you, as the creator, don't exactly know how it's going to manifest until you just start doing it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't do it in quite as headlong a way as some writers. I mean, William Gibson um, is is the classic example, and he terrifies me because he says he will just start off literally with an image, <laughs> Uh, he's got no ending, no structure. He writes the book, not only to find out what he thinks about things, but to find out what the book is oh jesus That's he's awesome. literally just he's just got the itch to write a novel <laughs> and there's obviously a cloud of things in his head that he's recently been interested in um and then an exciting incident or or uh, I think it was um spook country he he literally just had an image he wanted to start with because the image seemed to him to be loaded with the book. And if he sat down and unpacked that image and extrapolated and followed all the little threads that, that came off that image, then there would be a book. Oh my God. It is complete trust to the process because You could very easily get 20,000 words into something like that and then discover there's no book there.
1: That is that is uh, that's very that's 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 kind of a Da Vinciian sort of like. Well, he's inside the marble. I'm just freeing the images in there. Like, okay, I get it. You're a genius. I,
2: I, I, it's just you know William Gibson in you know a small room in a house in Vancouver going on a spirit quest once every couple of years <laughs> to find out what's hidden in the jungle in the back of his head.
1: How much of it is? Uh, I mean. How much of it for you have you been able to emotionally separate between like the commerce of it and really just keep like the art of it and the stories that you want to tell versus like how, what's the balance between those two?
2: Uh, I don't know if there is because uh, I'm a professional writer, which means I'm a commercial artist. Sure. Um, That doesn't mean that commercial art can't be sublime. Some of the greatest art of the 19th century... Uh, was done for French advertising boardings. Yeah, you know um, <clears throat> the the mindset that works for me. What I have in the back of my head is that a commercial writer does not simply mean giving the people what they want or trying to predict an audience. Or trying to write towards a perceived customer base. Yeah. Um, and even the, the grossest of commercial artists have been aware of that. There's a story. Um, this guy who was either uh, the flight consultant on Top Gun. Uh, while they're shooting that, he wanders out to this local beach and he sees Jerry Brookheimer watching all the teenagers laying around on the beach. Um, because Jerry Brookheimer was the saner one. He didn't walk up and say, you know, which of these children are you going to try and fuck?
0: <laughs> oh, <Jesus.
2: clears throat> he, he, he simply sort of watched Jerry Brookheimer and then walked up to him and said, I see what you're doing. You're, you're trying to decide what they want and then work out how to give it to them. This is why you're studying these teenagers. And, and Jerry Brookheimer was genuinely shocked and stepped back and said, no, no, no we dictate what
1: they want. Whoa. Oh Whoa. fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Jerry's still doing that.
2: Very probably, but what it boils down to is not writing what the audience wants. Um so much as perhaps suggesting that, you know, what we're trying to say is maybe something they would like instead.
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's a, there's a, a weird sort of, um, you know, a, 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 people get cranky and they get you know like when you when you work on sometimes when you work on something and maybe you found this to be true or not, uh, and maybe it's a pre-existing title or it's popular or it is commercial and people are like, hey man, that 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 guy or that thing is selling out, and it's like, no no, selling out is when you compromise your vision for money. It's not getting paid to do something that you love doing. Like those are very distinct things
2: selling out is bullshit anyway it's just one of those hammers people like to use on you to drive you down to a certain height that's all it is when you're accused of selling out what that means is you've managed to get paid well for doing a job in the way you want to do it That's what people mean. People mean you're writing what you want instead of what I want. You sell out.
1: I know, okay. and it, and it is kind of interesting that you know, particularly someone like yourself that has so many titles under your belt, and you've worked on so many different, with so many different characters, and created so many characters, and taken existing characters and different storylines that people probably start to have some sort of an ownership over you. And do you ever feel like that? They're like, how can you do this? You're like, but what? I'm just a guy.
2: I get it every now and again, but, you know, I wrote a 1,300-page political science fiction graphic novel. If you want to call me a sellout after that, I will laugh in your face at the same
1: (laughs) time as I shit on your head. (laughs) (laughs) Honey, Warren Ellis broke into our house and he's squatting over the bed. But he's laughing. I I think after doing
2: something as stupid as a thousand-page political science fiction graphic novel, I'm pretty much inoculated.
4: (laughs) Well, and then you follow that up by doing something like Planetary, which it seemed like for the first year it was running did nothing but make people mad, or and at the same time endear it to sort of everybody.
2: Um, possibly you pay more attention to reviews than I do. I don't read a lot of them.
4: I just remember when it was coming out, like, people were either super insanely into it or the maddest I've ever seen about someone in a comic book. Were they really? Yeah, just, just... Well, because you played with a lot of tropes, and that was in a time period where a lot of that stuff was happening, and you saw a lot of people who really like classic comic book tropes to not be fucked with, and there was just a lot of people taking hammers to things, because that came out right around the same time as, like uh a bunch of stuff like Mark Millar was doing and things like that and so it was just it was a fun time if you liked watching things get turned on their ear
2: well you know bearing bear in mind uh, every Mark Millar comic has someone sodomized in it <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would have come off fairly easy compared to that
1: <laughs> well, there's just a lot of laughing and bed shitting there's no <laughs> sodomy in this one right um I do want to by the way extend my condolences on your little printer. Um I feel really bad about I about I was reading
2: your- it. I did manage to get the thing reassembled but it involved hammers.
1: <laughs> who who was the who was the woman whose I I want a little more backstory on, because you were- Oh, you really don't. (laughs) (laughs) There wasn't any detail about how the talons destroyed the little printer. It was just, (laughs) don't let an old relative in your home with talons.
2: Yeah, yeah, you really don't want any more
1: details on that one. <laughs> well, good. Well, I'm glad everything's uh, up and running again.
2: It's 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 mostly working. I just have to have conversations with Berg about the bits inside it that are currently missing and whether those were important. <laughs> um, but it'll be fine. It'll be fine.
1: You, uh, you are, uh, I, I guess, what any reasonable person would assume to be uh, an early adopter of web culture. Um, that you know, you saw pretty early on, like mm-hmm. this is a way. You know, this is this is not this is not just like uh, a Walkman. Like this is the internet is going to be a way of life and a way that people are going to exchange real information and interact, not just give information, but really, you know, with all of your work with message boarding, it's like really interact with a community. When, when did mm-hmm. you, when did you start to feel like that was a viable form of interaction?
2: <coughs> I got online. I guess around 94, mm-hmm. um, and with Lily and my daughter in 95, um, and at the time, the way to build any kind of profile in comics was to go to the States and do the convention circuit, which began in like April or May and finished in like October,
1: Yeah,
2: a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of travelling. And I didn't have time or money. And I'm essentially quite lazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm farting around with, oh, it was CompuServe. Mm-hmm. I was on CompuServe back then, um, which had a nascent form of chat room, amongst other things. And there was a comics forum, they called it there, that was sorted like a message board. And there was a guy from Germany who was uh, involved in comic convention. Involved in a few, in fact. uh, I think it was Erlangen. So um, this suggested to me uh, that the capability was there to do, the opportunity
1: there to do convention-like networking
2: without having to leave my chair, which I found greatly appealing.
1: (laughs) And then you saw, like, this is the future. Is that sort of, would you say that was sort of the... uh, the is that where you started to feel the tinglings of this sort of like transhumanist movement at that point? Or you're like, someday we're gonna be avatars in a machine. Uh
2: actually I'd been following the transhumanist stuff um since the late 80s, but back then it was just the occasional book, and you'd uh find magazines in obscure stores. Um so um no, I'd been interested previous to that. But, of course, the web brought a lot of that a lot closer. Back in the days of mailing
1: lists. Yes. Remember when people didn't have spam filters? <laughs>
2: I really miss mailing lists. It's the weirdest thing. I miss the old transhumanist list. I miss fringeware. wear. <laughs> Terrence McKenna had a great mailing list.
1: It really is, it's a shame because a lot of these, a lot of them built up these massive user bases. And then Mm. it was just like, ah, well, people don't really do that anymore. Like, ah, shit, that was years of work. Uh, It
2: was, well, I mean, what it was, I mean, the technology to run these things went away in large part. I mean, my old mailing list had, um, at the end, it probably had 12 or 15,000 active readers. Uh, But at the end of the day, the technology to run it went away.
1: And did you did you did were you panicky at all in the sense of because it was like it was such a good way to immediately alert your fans. I mean, obviously, I know we have social networking now, and so there are ways to you know like obviously you can alert people in other ways. (coughs) But there's something so personal about getting an email in your inbox that tells you about something that you actually care about without having to sift through all the shit in social media.
2: There was a phase of a few years when when things like Twitter already started jumping. People didn't want email anymore. If you looked around the tech blogs, every other post was about how email is broken. So what happened towards the end of my mailing list is that there was no engagement anymore. People were just trashing it or filing it without actually reading it or clicking on anything. Oh, yeah. So at the end of the day, I had this look. Impending technological failure. And there, there was no engagement there anymore because people just didn't want mailing lists anymore. Mm. So when I shut it down uh, back then, it was uh, a relief for everybody, I think. <laughs>
1: Uh, did you have a ceremonious final email or were you just like shut off oh oh, there
2: there was i I like i like a little bit of theater so (laughs) whenever whenever i shut something down there is there is always great ceremony because it amuses me greatly uh and then with the pr starting on gun machine one of the things um they talked about was a newsletter so i thought all right then I'll start a newsletter again, and this time I'll do it using your expensive publisher purchase
3: technology. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> it would just be easier for everybody. Um, and I barely post on that once a week because I haven't had the time, and I've still got like five or 6,000 engaged users on that because it's come around again. People are starting to get crap in their Twitter feeds. Yeah. And so a mailing list uh, that's coming from just one place, no one can reply, it's just me broadcasting to a list, that has a certain strange appeal to it again for some people, it seems. Now that social networking is getting noisier and our email boxes now have you know decent filters and our email has grown quieter, there's almost like a desire again to get something interesting in your email.
1: Well, now basically, social media is just we're subscribed to a constant email list that is <laughs> perpetually <laughs> dynamic. And reco- the big change with
2: Twitter um, was um, other people's posts appearing in your timeline.
1: Yeah, who do, you like yeah. To, who do you like to follow? Who 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 do you think is like? What do you think is a worthwhile? Who is worthwhile in social media?
2: Oh, let's spring it up because you're asking me complicated things now that involve memory. So,
1: <laughs> I mean, besides at Nerdist. <laughs> <laughs> of course.
2: That address again. At Nerdist, everybody. <laughs> but, uh, uh, obviously, I keep a fair amount of news stuff online. I've got uh, BBC breaking news, Guardian, that sort of thing. John Hodgman's always good for a laugh. Oh, yeah, he's amazing. amazing. He's a good, good Twitter. Um, oh, oh yes, there's Chris Hardwick at Nerdist. Yeah, there um, is. <laughs> a lot of the tech people. I've got like uh, Blur uh, Berg's account and and Matt Jones and Annab Jane and this woman I met back in the summer who's got the best name in the world, Doctor Rebecca, and that's spelled with two K's, hmm. Doctor Rebecca kill
1: oh you have to steal her identity and make it i know right (laughs) dr rebecca Kill like if you saw that's that's a bond scientist
3: yeah
2: it's absolutely brilliant um she's um she's uh the head of an art school and uh involved in architecture design um does a lot of speaking engagements uh and in the evening she's a dj (laughs)
3: no. <laughs> of course.
2: oh she, all, all, I'm, I'm just assuming that on weekends she also assassinates people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And no one would expect it because her name is literally "kill," and so they'd be like, "Well, right. that's too obvious." Too obvious.
2: How obvious, right?
1: Uh, a
2: lot of music people on my list. I've got Clint Mansell and and people like that. Various BBC reporters. Uh, A few comics people for my sins, because there's nothing quite like mocking Jamie McKelvey in the middle of the day. (laughs) He's going to listen to this now specifically because someone mentioned his name.
1: They'll tweet him, hey, hey, Warren Ellis was talking about you on the Uh, podcast, uh, Minute 31. (laughs) (laughs) Just fast forward right through all the other stuff. <laughs>
2: I'm just looking through this now. I really do have a lot of bloody journalists and tech people on this. This is
1: terrible. Are you going to start? Are you going to prune? Or are you going to thin out the herd a little bit?
2: Um, I've actually been like, forcing myself to add more people because it seems like I follow fewer people than most other people do. It's been a struggle to get up to like 250 people.
3: I follow, uh, I want to keep my follower, like how many people I follow at 666. Uh, just because uh, the, when, when the Melvins were on MySpace, that's how many friends they let on on their MySpace page. That's how many friends they had. So I tried to do that. But it's, it's, it's tricky because every time you're like, oh, I want to follow that, and then you have to quickly decide who goes. <laughs> someone. Yeah. And, I, and like, I stress out about it because I'm like, I got to do this quick before someone sees that I have 667. Not me. Not this guy. That's... I
2: know, I know people who got their followers to like a round number, and then saw, oh, must add that person, and then have OCD for a week because they're following like 101 people, <laughs> <laughs> and they can't think of anyone to cut. But that number is in front of them, and it's just essentially wrong, and it's driving them crazy.
1: Where do you think? Uh, where, where do you think it's all go? I mean, like this idea that you know, I, I think I feel like I remember. Was there like a short story called? Um, procession of simulacra or, or something which, which which essentially kind of mapped out um what ultimately kind of became the matrix and then ultimately now is sort of what we're living i mean like you don't we don't we don't really see real images all the time we don't really interact with actual people we're interacting with machines we're interacting with edited images i mean ha- are we pretty far into it at this point
2: Well, um, right now the internet is still nothing but people. So I don't particularly go along with that. As far as social media goes, let me just make sure we're still on here. There we go. Hello? Yep. There we go. As far as social media goes, I mean, here's a Mayan metaphor. We're at the end of the long cycle. <laughs> we're at the end of to One of social media. Uh we're reaching the end of the cycle I feel that started with Friendster and Live Journal. Yeah. Um where the scene is solidified into maybe three or four players in social media now. Right. And these little social media startups have grown up into big media. They've Essentially calcified into big media, and now they have big media problems. Uh, that whole thing with Twitter and Instagram a couple of weeks ago.
1: Oh my god! Yeah, and 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 the thing that sucks the thing that sucks about it for for users is that you just want you want a clean experience with which integrates well, but each company has its own set of rules. And ever since Facebook brought Instagram, they've been actively kind of walling off their garden and i feel like instagram has forgotten that it was able to sell for a billion dollars because of the community of people that supported it yeah mm-hmm.
2: uh, frame it in this imagine the dispute between twitter and instagram as a cable television carriage dispute right because that's essentially what it is yeah that's the kind of problems they have now. It's the kind of bullshit that television gets its fossilised arse involved with. Yeah. And that is a sign of the times. That is the sign that they are now big media and all their problems are basically going to be pissing matches. And it's not about the users. It's about what the users can be used for. Right. And what the users can be leveraged against, which of course will be other services, as illustrated in twitter and Instagram um I have some sympathy for Twitter because people tweet twitter treat Twitter like it's a natural resource mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, people build businesses on twitter, they do like like it's water <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to stand over here, hit the ground and this fire hose is going to jet up out of it and I will build my business on top of this. But Twitter is not a natural resource and you cannot expect them to like being treated like that. You cannot expect them not to turn around and say, well, I'm sorry, you didn't just hit the ground and water came out. I made this shit. <laughs> <laughs> And I might be letting you play in it, but when it comes down to it, I have to get paid to make this shit.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's kind
2: of the way I did it. Um, so if you're bitching at me that you don't get to earn money based on what I'm spraying here then uh, that's kind of a bullshit argument.
1: Well, I don't, you know, just from having the the podcast and, you know, like after a while we had taken on sponsorships and we tried to explain to people like, you know, it's very expensive to give away free things. We all take, everything for granted now. I mean, I remember when you had to pay for email service, you know, uh, and then, and then, you know, like you mentioned, you know, CompuServe or or Prodigy or, you know, any of the, or the old AOL, 70 Mm -hmm. free hours. Oh, Um, 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 But, but now we take everything for granted as it's all supposed to be free. However, you know, like this recent news with Instagram, and you know like well we have the right to advertise against your content, and you know you don't really own any of your content anymore, yes. for all intents and purposes um that uh you know at what at what point is it like, okay, I get that you're trying to make money, but now that's that feels like it's a little evil
2: well, yeah, um. Because the easiest ways to make money are evil. They're they're both evil and banal. On the other hand, I've been playing, paying for my Flickr account this whole time. Yeah,
1: that's true. I have too. Yeah, I, so yeah. so have I. <laughs> I didn't think about it. Just just pay a little, like fourteen dollars a year, or whatever, for that little pro. Yeah, exactly. Or, or whatever yeah, it is.
2: Yeah, I'm paying like twenty quid every two years or something.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's not that's and not that for, bad. for Vimeo. I pay for the uh, the premium Vimeo. Yeah. Yeah no waiting none <laughs>
1: none <laughs> well i just is this is this the is this the start of i just feels like this this is that sort of you know prelude to Company takes over, like we used to think of the idea of like companies taking over humanity, of taking our, over our physical world. But essentially, now they own all of our information. I mean, I don't want to sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist because I'm uh, not. I, I,
2: I think it, honestly, I think it's, it's the prelude to a very dull couple of years. Really? <laughs> yeah. Where these services are going to be less connected. All right. It already started. It already started with Twitter. Uh, Twitter pulled their. API from if this then that. Right. All of a sudden, Twitter became a lot less useful. Right. They're going to be pulling Twitter cards from various places. They've started already. Um, Things are going to be less connected. The walled gardens. And I don't argue against walled gardens because it turns out people like them.
1: Isn't that interesting that, you know, like I, I got online in 94 as well. And there was that first few years where, you know, if you were on AOL or whatever service you were on, you were sort of walled within that service. And then you branched out to the World Wide Web and you could go anywhere. And Some then, of us did. Yeah. And then, and then people are lot migrating of people back. A
2: people stayed in AOL chat rooms.
1: Yeah. Still.
2: Yeah, probably. Yeah. I don't know if they're still there, but, you know, I remember at the time. You know, I don't want to go out to the web. And this happens in every walled garden, it turns out people like them. You know, the, 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 the quickest way to not get anything read on LiveJournal back in the day, or frankly, Tumblr these days, is to post a link that goes somewhere other than LiveJournal or Tumblr.
3: Right, yeah, very
2: much. God, I have to go outside? Do <laughs> the wild web
1: it's that same sort of nerdy scary. tendency that keeps you in your house from going yeah. out into the world it's it, the it, same mechanism you
2: know, what, what what if a bear suddenly wants to have sex with
1: me it's, <laughs> you know, it's the web What's, jesus you mean you mean wants to advertise in front of me you mean a, you mean a large hairy gay man <laughs> yes um, but i, I want <laughs> i wonder uh, um, uh, just it's an interesting idea that people and and I'm guilty of this a hundred percent. But looking at the lack of integration between Instagram and Twitter and Twitter and Facebook and you know whatever other social media and mm. and kind of getting cranky and being like, why can't this all work the way I want it to? It's we assume that social media is a is like a god given right that we all have and it better work exactly the way we want or fucking. Crazy, crazy times.
2: But, you know, if they didn't want us to think that, they wouldn't have used the word social. No, that's true. You know, if what they meant um, was privately owned, walled communication nets, then someone should have thought of a different fucking word.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true.
2: Um, When you call something social media it invites you to believe that all things flow into the boulevard. It's, you know, the clue is kind of in the name. Yeah. Um, if they meant, you know, personal network publishing systems or any other fucking thing. Um, And I'm presuming this will start changing. I'm presuming you know people will start adopting new terminology to uh, describe what will be you know the new territory where Twitter is used as a TV rating system by Nielsen.
1: Yes, that's that's going to be very interesting to try to measure that because I wonder sometimes if if the metrics of Twitter can entirely be trusted the way people want the way people want them to work. I don't know if they actually work that way.
2: I don't know. I found it interesting because I was curious, and I still don't know where the impetus for that came. The networks have been pushing uh, for new ratings analysis packaging for a while. And rightfully so. Because because of time shifting. Because they want to get more of a sense of who's DVRing their shows. Yeah. Yeah on who's watching on Hulu or whatever. Time-shifting is the thing. Because uh, the networks can't survive without advertising. And the lower the ratings on the night are, the less they can charge for advertising next time. Right. So they need these bolstered figures so they can go back to the advertisers. And, well, it might be a 1.9 over the night. But once you're factoring this, this, and your actually a 3.2, so we're going to charge you like this is a three show right but without numbers from things like this, the advertisers say no
1: fuck off you're crazy well it isn't mm-hmm. it, it's such an it's such an a- antiquated you know like like the whole the the Nielsen idea of yeah we put it there's a, some sort of a tracking system in someone's you know in a, in a small control group number of homes yeah. that represent what everyone does but but I feel like and I don't know what the answer is I'm just saying that it seems like because of the way there are you know Ten different ways that people consume things, that there should be some sort of a three-dimensional metric that takes into account cultural penetration versus how many people watch this thing at 9 p.m. on a Thursday? Because people just those aren't really habits anymore that No,
2: no, but look at it, look at it like this. This is something a writer said a TV writer said to me a few years ago. <clears throat> Television shows are a delivery system for advertising. Of course. The most successful TV shows deliver more eyeballs. If a show delivers less advertising then by a a system of, you know, Darwinian attrition, it is taken out behind the stables and shot. (laughs) You must think of television shows first and foremost as delivery systems for advertising. Yeah. Their success or failure is just first on that basis.
1: Of course. It's the same way that in a comedy club you're distracting people so they'll drink and eat food. Right.
2: But you can't be a successful delivery system for advertising if your pitch for that delivery system is well you won't get the numbers you think you're going to get on the night of airing but trust us in about 10 days they'll all be there. Right. So that's why they need these packages. Does it, um,
1: yeah. does it make it any more or less daunting? Because are you, are you developing Gun Machine with Chernin's Churn, with group? I'm, I'm, I'm consulting on it, yes. You're consulting on it. Okay, so, you know, um, the idea of, of being involved again with, a, with another television pro- project, do you, I mean, obviously that has a lot of upsides, but are you like, ah, fuck, television's a pain in the ass right now, or are you pretty excited about it? Television's
2: always a pain in the ass. I don't think that there has not been for a long time uh, ever a good time to make television. Um, And an argument can be made that network television as we know it is going away. So it would be nice to do some while we can. (laughs) I don't think that'll happen soon. Same as, you know, I'd I'd like to do British television while we've still got terrestrial television and, and big aerials, you know. Uh, It it would be the sort of thing that would be nice to do while we can do it before it
1: goes away forever. What's the sort of main difference when working with British television versus working in American television?
2: Um, British television um, is one project, one writer, for the most part. You can still do that kind of novelistic television here, uh, which in American network television, forget it. I mean, it's rarer, I think, than it should be in
1: cable. do you want to ultimately shift and just focus on film or do you feel like the film business is suffering a lot of the same stuff?
2: Um, the, the film business always has problems unto itself. Um, <laughs> um, the polite way to frame it, of course, is William Goldman's old of Nobody Knows Anything. Um, they are just some years even fewer people know anything than others. Yeah. Uh, Which is, I mean, there there have been some disastrous flops in the last two to three years. Just disastrous flops. Um, Which, you know, makes for great spectator sport. (laughs) But it also speaks to being in one of those periods where the film industry is in its own little bubble. And you think any idiot could have wandered onto the Disney slot, uh, the, the Disney um, lot, excuse me, and said, you know, you're going to run John Carter against the Hunger Games. You're insane. And let me explain to you why. Mm-hmm. Anyone who was half conscious that day. Uh, could have done that for Disney, but you know, there was no outside consultation, there were no conversations outside a set of offices. Um, Bless him, that director is a terrific director, um, but John Carter was just sort of at its genetic level um, a film idea that was not going to receive success in the early 21st century.
1: It was, it was kind of an interesting, I mean, I know. I, I get the idea. I'm like, you know, so many people were inspired by that story, and it, 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 you know, it ended up informing so many of the contemporary sci-fi that we enjoyed. But again, you know, it's written in the early 20th century, and it's like, so people he's, were he's inspired. Breathing, he's breathing
2: by it and, yeah, people were inspired by it, um, and the imagination and the imagery of all that. Um, but on their own, and usually. Um, in adolescence, right, I would argue. If you're taking something out as as what they conceive of as a four quadrant film, and your plot is as follows: white soldier wanders into a cave, falls asleep, wakes up on Mars, gets superpowers through putting out no effort of his own, <laughs> beats <laughs> of strangely coloured monsters, gets the girl, wins the end. If you think that's going to play up against the Hunger Games, which is poor girl from massively underprivileged society, uh, is threatened, coerced, menaced, and ultimately betrayed by authority while she fights for the right for her people to eat.
1: It is a sexier plot. (laughs) I also think there's a
2: great business it's that It's easier to find relevance in the present day, shall we say, than white guy gets superpowers. <laughs>
3: sure. White a guy tra- already a, has a, white guy takes a nap, Wait a minute. It's everything
1: he needs. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, oh, wait, let's amend that attractive white guy yeah. <laughs> there you go. attractive white guy does great yeah gets attractive gets attractive scantily clad yeah. quasi martian princess somehow breathing in the martian atmosphere yeah yeah um yeah
2: one was always gonna play one always really kind of wasn't
1: <sighs> what, I, I, you, you should The studios should, and you probably feel this a similar way, they should just pay a small group of people, including yourself and a couple others, to come in once a month and go, here's what we're planning on doing. And then have, because you as a storyteller can go in and say, yeah, you guys don't really understand this is the movie, because I'm sure none of them saw that as like white guy takes a nap, and actually have crafted, like, like uh, talented storytellers tell them, here's what you're really selling, and here's why that's not going to work with yeah. what's happening. I'm
2: sure, I'm sure it happens somewhere, but I, I also imagine a very successful studio like Disney. Um, I imagine there's an echo chamber effect. Yeah. Um, that is probably insoluble. Uh, on the other hand, I know Marvel, um, they have, like, the clubhouse at Marvel. There's a bunch of the, the Marvel writers... Who uh, get to in- consult on all the Marvel projects, and they're they obviously sitting outside the studio system, the production offices, <laughs> and I presume the idea, excuse me, is, is to put a fresh voice into the room.
1: I guess so. I, do you see a lot of the? Do you see? How do you see big comic industry at the moment?
2: Um, I'd be honest with ya, pay very little attention to it these days.
1: Yeah. Do you think it's not necessary anymore? <coughs> Sorry, how do you mean? Well, just in the sense of do you need, you know, like just like any other industry like like the record industry or television industry now that people can self-distribute and people like do you feel like you still kind of need a machine in place to help with promotion or do you feel like, you know what? Maybe it's not a route that you necessarily need to go down anymore if you're a young creator?
0: Uh
2: My problem has always been that the comics industry is very, very cyclical, Uh, by which I mean to say that every three years we have all these same fucking conversations all over a fucking game. Right. Um, And that brings its own special kind of exhaustion. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Digital has been adopted too late and not fully enough. I don't know if there'll ever really be the traction with digital comics I would like to have seen. Um, There haven't been enough people gambling on doing web comics in a sort of web-to-print model. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand that... Direct market sales, they go up, they go down, they go up again. There doesn't seem to really be a trend or rhyme or reason. Um, I think the last time I looked at a chart, it looks like everything was still slowly drifting down again. Um, But I have no access to bookstore sales numbers, and I presume the trade paperback business is still rising and supporting the print
4: singles. Um, I actually had a friend who was telling me that it's sort of shifting the other way a little bit in the last few years because like I got into comics right as the trade thing was going and I guess the monthly is sort of has a novelty to it at the moment and it's sort of rising back up
2: well I mean that's interesting because the big problem with monthly comics is you can only buy them in comic book shops and they're closing all the time and new ones aren't really opening at the same rate so you're probably looking at you know third north america and probably britain too in total you're probably looking at 1800 retail locations
0: yeah
1: well we have um our we have a we run a comedy theater that's at the back of meltdown comics in los angeles mm-hmm. um and Every time, every time, like if I do buy a digital comic, I always feel bad. I'm like, oh, the guy that I work with, Gaston. I'm, I'm taking money out of his, yeah. I'm taking money out of Gill's mouth. Yeah. You know, like I, I feel, I feel so bad. <laughs> but then, you know, it's like it's so hard to travel with like a stack of comics. You know, with, with as much. Also, as I,
2: travel. I mean, I mean, this is this is obviously the argument a lot of comic stores use. You can you buy digital because you're taking money away from us, the bricks, and more to retail people. Um, but I know people who'd have to drive for 12 hours to reach their nearest retail location. Sure,
4: yeah. Am
2: I going to tell them, no, you need to suck it up for six months until you can ride a horse to the nearest comic book store? <laughs> right, right. Um, fuck that noise. Um, and <laughs> bit- <laughs> I'm so good with and the besides, British open it's the 21st century if I want to buy a comic at 3 o'clock in the fucking morning then I should be able to regardless of whether the shops open
1: and then read the next nine issues one after the other immediately <laughs> oh, I'll buy that one. I'll buy that one. I'll buy that one. I would actually almost think that it's probably better for the comics industry because of impulse buying. Most definitely, uh, because of you know recommendation engines and you know and, yeah. and and whatnot, that you you're more likely to impulse buy if it's right there and you don't see any money changing hands and you can just poke a, a, you know a, an avatar. Uh, yeah,
2: it's my understanding that digital sales in total are somewhere between 10 and 25 percent of print sales right now
1: oh wow i didn't realize it was that low oh yeah it'll keep going up do you think um how do you feel about this sort of rise of comic-con culture as sort of being like a dominant face of, of pop culture right now well,
2: matter? if that was true, then Scott Pilgrim would have been the most successful film of its year.
1: Bam. Yeah. Maybe, but but then
2: and so would Skyline. Sky. I remember I was there in uh, last time I was at San Diego. I was in 2010, and there were ads from Skyline and the buildings. Not as disturbing, however, as the ads for Scott Pilgrim. They covered an entire front of a hotel with a Scott Pilgrim poster. I I was staying
1: in that hotel,
2: I remember. (laughs) That was a friend of mine, because I got a text from him saying, apparently I'm staying inside Scott Pilgrim's balls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And he's he's all hunched over, so the guy's crunched up inside. Mm. Excellent marketing there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was the, the Hilton Bay front. I remember I remember that marketing campaign. Yeah, but huge. I don't know I don't I know if the success of I mean, I don't know. I, I, still I think it
4: was six months or a year or two ahead of its time. Like I think that, that zeitgeist with the younger audience that's gonna go to stuff like that wasn't quite as hipped to it as it is now.
1: Or do you think it's just that Scott Pilgrim was not like like it was people were aware of it within certain circles, but if you didn't know what Scott Pilgrim was would you I go see that movie?
2: It, I think it was terribly, terribly let down by the marketing. Yeah. Yes. Film. Did you ever see the poster? Yeah. Not good. Yeah. So it's a film at like the top of Michael Serra's head.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it should... that was that was the message it sent. There was there was no effort to sell the film. There was no effort to define, let alone describe the film.
1: I think they they banked a lot on oh, people are going to see that we've done a real-life version of this comic image. They,
2: they banged everything on Comic-Con. They thought if, you know, the buzz started at Comic-Con, it would just carry them all the way through. And not only was, you know, Comic-Con never going to be powerful enough. Oh, I mean, now that I think about it, I was there in 2010, and most of the questions I was uh, were about the power of Comic-Con. I had all these TV journalists asking me about nerd culture and nerd culture runs everything now. Tell me about the power of Comic-Con.
1: Well, uh, I, that's a really interesting point. I guess you're right. I mean, like they didn't, they didn't come out in droves for Scott Pilgrim, but there are certainly other movies where they did. And, and I just, I remember going to Comic-Cons where it wasn't, One hundred and fifty thousand people. Like it's, it's definitely. There's definitely something there, and there's definitely been a paradigm shift. But I just don't, you know. I I guess I
2: I was first there in ninety seven, and there were forty five thousand people, and it already felt like too many.
1: And now preview night of Comic-Con in San Diego this year, preview night used to be the night where you're like, oh, you can breathe and you can walk around. And this year it was like, you can't fucking move. Oh, God,
2: it's like Christmas. It starts earlier every year.
4: (laughs) (laughs) The Comic-Con creep.
2: And it never seems to end. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, you think about it. I mean, are there any films that were made by Comic-Con? Um,
4: well, I mean, <laughs> I feel like smaller things sometimes work a little better because, like, there's definitely things like that. Dread
2: did well at Comic-Con, yeah.
4: absolutely died at the cinemas. I guess maybe they just got to start making better movies and selling them at Comic-Con. TV, though.
2: I, I haven't seen Dread, but I read the script, and uh, the script was terrific. Mm.
3: So. I heard it was good. A friend of mine really dug it. He said it was, it was just like uh, uh, The Raid. Well, Avengers did well. That could have been another Fantastic uh, they Four. They
2: did, did do quite well, but I, I'm not going to ascribe that one to being you know, accepted at San Diego. Oh, you don't think so? <laughs> the Avengers was always going to do well. They could have, I mean, all all power to Joss, but they could have got Ed Wood to shoot that film. <laughs> was,
4: I think Walking
2: and it Dead would have been example, the top though. film of its week. Yeah. Um, because you know it had all the stars from three, three, three uh, previous very successful then, films. Yeah, but all then Marvel films did well.
1: But Iron Man, but Iron Man was completely resurrected in our culture by the Iron Man by the Favreau movie. Like it wasn't. I remember when when I first saw the trailers for Iron Man, I'm like, oh, here we go. They're really starting to dig a little bit deeper into into comic books. You know, yeah. to like get these superhero comics out after X Men and Spider Man and. You know, and then Iron Man ended up being fucking, you know, I, uh, Avengers did well, but Iron Man wasn't really much of anything in cinema before that.
2: I, I honestly, I mean, all respect to everyone else who was involved, I honestly ascribe a lot of that um, to a great public fondness for Robert Downey Jr.,
1: Maybe, but he had kind of hit the skids. I think for a long even time.
2: even when he was at his lowest, um, there was a kind of blunt honesty to him that people responded to. <laughs> where you know he sat in front of the judge having, I don't know, snorted coke off a rhino in a tutu. <laughs> Hot. And the judge says, "Well, you're a very bad boy. I'm sending you to prison." And Robert Downey Junior. looked at the guy and said. You're right. I fucked up. Let's do it.
1: (laughs) There's a whole generation of kids that don't even know there was a period of time where you could just wake up and Robert Downey Jr. would be in your house. (laughs) (laughs) Next to Warren, who was shitting in your bed and laughing in your face. (laughs) There's a whole generation of people
2: who don't realize that Robert Downey Jr. used to be a serious actor, frankly.
1: Very serious actor and a really good one. Yes. An exceptional... Um
2: yeah, I mean, he went away for a fair bit, um, but I think there was always a public fondness for him. And when he did Iron Man, it was very much just Robert Downey Jr. himself turned up to 11.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let me, did did you or did were you not involved with those Iron Man anime? Uh... I,
2: uh, the, the anime, yeah. I, what I did is I wrote uh, plot lines for uh-huh. all of those. Uh, that were then sent to Japan, translated, um, and presumably adapted in some form um, into scripts. But um, I think they were treated as no more than springboards, because I saw one episode of the Iron Man anime, and it didn't really reflect anything I'd written.
1: I, I watched the first episode of it, and it was uh, it was a lot of talking. It was a yeah. lot of talking, and then something and then something happened. Yeah. And a lot of the talking was, you know, Tony Stark saying like, "Yeah, I'm retired." <laughs> <laughs>
4: okay.
2: Yeah. Um, as I say, yeah, I didn't do anything that really involved <laughs> script or or, or episodic yeah. structure.
1: Well, uh, do you like do you like taking on pre existing characters and seeing and trying to find original places for them to go, or do you like? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? I know it's so loud here right now. Now there's a fucking. Now there's a hang on. There's a leaf blower outside. I'm going to see if
3: I can make that guy go away. All right, Warren. <laughs> Warren, he's gone now. You can speak with your, yeah. your true feelings about him. <laughs> oh, wait, he's back. <laughs> shut up, oh, shut up. What are you doing? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Just talking to
1: this perfect stranger. <laughs> if you ever want to see your family again, Jonah. <laughs> oh,
3: God, Chris, please. Oh, God, Martha. <laughs> Martha? <laughs> she, she's old. She's an older woman. You know my style.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I... uh I'm curious. I always, from a writing standpoint, do you like do you like taking pre existing characters in new directions, or like something like Freak Angels, where you can you get to create this entirely new thing to put into the world?
2: Ah, uh, the ideal is always creating something new. Yeah. Um, when I do company owned work, um, I'll be frank with you, it's often um, to get some money coming in or to raise my profile in the industry a bit. Uh, but I will always select things that I can personally get interested in, um, and find new angles on. It's not just about the money. Um, but it's a commercial job. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to put aside on it. I'm I'm being paid to paint the company's house. I don't own the house. I don't own the brushes. I don't own the paint.
4: Right.
2: Um, it's always going to have less of me in it. Than something I've sat down and created for myself.
4: How do you feel about uh, adapting your own work into like other mediums and stuff?
2: Um, people pay me for the right to adapt, mm. and what that means is I take the money and they go away and adapt it, and they have the right to not me have not have me sitting on their shoulders <laughs> saying you're wrong, you're doing it all wrong, you bastard, you bastard. That's eight <laughs> for.
1: Well, that's what happened with that's what happened with Max Brooks. Is like I think Max. Like gave them a draft of the World War Z script, and they were like, well, we're going to do this other thing, and he was like, "I'm out. you go do whatever you want. I'm, I have nothing to do with it and, right. and uh and I, I think was even resistant to even watch the trailer, and then finally <laughs> did.
2: <laughs> well, having seen the trailer? I don't blame him.
1: that's true. Do you have
4: a, a hard time looking at, like at it afterwards? Like I know like Alan Moore's really famous for not loving a lot of the things that have happened and just sort of quietly ignoring it? Are you able to I, I, remove yourself?
2: I like Alan an awful lot. Um But if he's going to sell those rights, then, you know, if it's going to upset you, then don't sell the fucking rights. I, I mean, on, on things like Watchmen, obviously he had no choice. And I could understand him not wanting to watch that. Uh, but on things where he had the choice... um if you're going to sell them the rights, um, then you have to accept that a bad film may come out of it. Uh, when Red happened, I said, you know, I don't necessarily want or need it to be a literal adaptation of the uh, the, the graphic novel, not least because if it had been a literal adaptation, um, it would barely have been a half hour long if they are thrown in a musical number.
4: <laughs>
2: but... Um, What I want is a a film that people will like. I want to see a good film. And I thought Red was an entertaining film.
1: I really Uh, liked Red a lot. The sequel's coming out in in like a a little less than two years, right? No, no,
2: a year, next year. Let's see. They're wrapping up the shoot tomorrow. I haven't been able to get out to the set this time, but they're wrapping up at least the London end of the shoot tomorrow. Um, I think the film is due out next summer.
1: Have you is had that... have you had any conversations with Bruce Willis? I still can't get a read on that guy.
2: Yes, I have had conversations with Bruce Willis. Um, let me tell you something about Bruce Willis. Yes, but... <laughs> so um, I'm in Toronto on on the red shoot second unit, and they're shooting um, the scene in the CIA offices where he's where Bruce is fighting Carl Urban. Yeah. And they're still building part of that set. Um they're talking with the the stunt men and the stunt coordinator and the second unit director of the stainless. And there's still a guy up on a ladder um trying to um get the uh, the, the the roof in on uh, the the ceiling, sorry, on the room, and he's wobbling away on this ladder, and Bruce has got a coffee, and he's he's standing sort of next to the ladder, but partly with his back to it. Uh, and then I watch him. While he's talking, he doesn't miss a beat. Um, he sticks out one foot to steady the bottom of the stepladder and reaches out his free arm up to the top to steady the stepladder, to, to stabilise it up top. Doesn't look at the, the carpenter who's on the stepladder. Doesn't, you know, look for approbation or acknowledgement. He's not He's not thinking. He's chatting away. But he's he's just taking a second to make sure that stepladder's steady for that guy while he works.
1: Oh. oh. And then the that's guy Bruce, made him spill his coffee a little bit and Bruce beat the shit out of him, right? Yeah. That's that's Bruce Willis.
2: Bruce Willis is a guy who shows up to work.
1: Yeah. And he doesn't
2: have a lot of ego about it. I mean, I'm sure he has a lot of ego. But when he's on the set, he, he's, he's shown up with everyone else to work. Hmm. Which was not what I would have expected. Yeah. But, uh it was nice to see it. The great revelation actually was, was was John Malkovich, who I was terrified about meeting.
1: Do you think he was just going to be like, "Oh, crazy method actor, We're all going to have to address him by his character name." Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, you know,
2: one of the great journalistic sports of the '80s and '90s were incredibly shitty interviews with John Malkovich. <laughs> Whereas I went in to interview John Malkovich, and he tried to make me into a chair. <laughs> it, it's just horrible There's just a string of bodies behind him. Of a journalist here just like, burned and moved on. Um, he had kind of a rep. And uh, I was moving through the hotel lobby. I was actually going outside for a cigarette, and uh, one of the producers was coming in. And she said, oh, "Warren, Warren. Uh, I I'm, mean, I'm, I've got John Malkovich with me. Meet John Malkovich." I'm like, "I'm just going to go for a cigarette. I know you want to get Mr. Malkovich settled." And John Malkovich comes up with the hugest, goofiest smile you've ever seen, pumps my hand, and says, "Warren, it's so good to meet you. I've had such a good day." I've been shooting guns all day. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't even know what kind of guns. I take photos and I see my son and he tells me, shooting guns, thousands of bullets, they give you the most lovely utensils.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so he's, he's like a giant child. <laughs> yes. Yes, essentially. Loveliest guy. I know on the set they were keeping a running list of Malkovichisms.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) Do you remember any of them?
2: just says something like that every day.
1: Oh, that's sweet.
2: sweet. Nicest guy on earth. It was amazing.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. uh, I guess, are there any dark tales? Oh, this person's going to be great. I guess you probably shouldn't. You probably don't want to talk about that.
2: Oh, no. There were. I mean, there, there was Bruce Willis, John Malkovich, and Helen Mirren, who is just lovely. Oh, yeah. I love Helen Marin. <laughs> I got a, like, got a little yeah. bit of a crush. I <laughs> got a little a bit of a crush. Friend of mine, a, a friend of mine um, met Helen uh, a, a couple of years back, uh, and he was of a certain age, <laughs> shall we say, when many of uh, certain kinds of her films were around during his adolescence. Yes, and he walked up to her and said, "You know." Miss Mirren, I just wanted to say you, 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 your your films. I loved your films when, when I was younger. She gave me the most dazzling smile. Apparently, and says, "Do hope you enjoyed my breasts."
4: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's even hotter now. Yeah. Uh, I have to go. So,
2: I I I did also have to go out for a cigarette after meeting Helen Mirren, but you understand. What. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the, la- the I I just want to ask you like one one more kind of one more question before we release you back into uh into England which is um when you how how do you get past the wall when you're writing and you need to get through and there's just it's it's it just feels like bleak and dank and it's not do do you have any tricks that you do to push through the wall or do you not really experience that or you must as as much as you write
2: I mean I I hit it a couple of times on, on gun machine because there were a couple of sequences in in the novel um that were kind of tricky. Um, And the me that was available that day didn't have the skills to do those tricky bits. But you have to remember, only the end product appears linear. As you're writing it, you can jump around all over the bastard. Yeah. And the trick is just to keep thinking and keep your fingers moving. Uh, So I would simply move to a section of novel that I knew I could write that day
1: just to keep the machine greased
2: just to keep it going and you can always rewrite you can always go back and fix the incredibly stupid shit you did the day before <laughs> there's nobody watching nobody knows what goes into the sausage until it's in front of you. <laughs> so so you can you can fuck up in the most epic ways right up until the point where someone else has got the manuscript until then you can just screw it up incredibly uh, so i would i would simply jump around to the pieces anyone could do that day just to keep moving
1: i like that idea of uh, i've never heard it described quite that way of like the you of that day wasn't prepared for what that task was and then it's just <laughs> yeah
2: yeah some days i mean it happens some days you just don't have it but you shouldn't confuse that with being blocked Good. That just means that the you that is present that day doesn't have the enough functioning brain cells to do that one thing. That doesn't mean you can't achieve something else. So you just move on and find the thing you can do that day.
1: Yeah, I, I do think people get caught up a lot because they think it has to not only be linear the entire process, but also that everything has to be perfect when it comes out of their hands into the yeah. machine. and. And you realize, like, some really great stuff happens from fucking up. Like, oh, wow, I hadn't even, I fucked this up, but then that totally spawned this whole other thing. First thing I often do
2: every day just to get moving is to go through and fix and rewrite a chunk of what I did the previous day Hmm. to take out all the stupid. (laughs) 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 Taking out the stupid, big part of the job.
1: Do you uh, if people? If people, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this podcast is familiar with your work. But if they're not, they should check out uh, Transmetropolitan. Transmet- they should certainly check out Freak Angels. Your blog is delightful. Um, I don't know. It's just really nice. Like it's like a nice. It's just like a nice glimpse into. I I I, re- I, I enjoyed Spectre Module. Uh, ah, right. Which is uh, basically just a podcast of ambient at spooky music
3: oh that's awesome yeah that's it's
1: just like weird sounds and sleepy yeah, it's nice I'm getting really into that stuff Putting it's on me little down. hobby yeah I, I gotta check that out well the, the, the great thing about anime music then like that is that it, it can sort of free up part of your brain if you wanna do something else at yeah. the same you know like at the same time
2: yeah, yeah I mean that, that's a big part of it's function for me because it's about structure uh, but in no other way is it about writing uh, so it's it's using a different part of my brain, and it forces me to think in different ways when I'm putting one of those together. Um, so it's it, I find it relaxing, um, but doing one of those is also weirdly refreshing.
1: Well, people should also. Um, uh, uh, are, are you doing anything with Nick Cave at the moment? <laughs> Where's the elf <off> button? <laughs> <laughs> that actually would be the perfect Go place to, to, to end it. somewhere that, that, that would be the perfect place to end the podcast i'm hoping he's next to the remote death <laughs> <laughs> i think i think a perfect place to end the podcast would be like so are you doing anything where's the off button <laughs> and, and, and then it just ends um but um that's uh that's pretty much it okay do we,
2: uh... sure. I'm still looking for the airstrike
1: phone. <laughs> airstroke! <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, Warren. You've been.
2: Failed by the internet again.
1: Been... <laughs> when are we going to start installing airstroke buttons? With our...
2: Airstroke buttons? I think those have been around since the 90s. It was called Teledildonics.
1: <laughs> teledildonics! You remember that? What was that? Was that that was basically remote-controlled sex toys, right? That's right, Chris. Pre- pretend you don't remember. <laughs> now, I don't understand. How does it? How does it give you the best orgasms you've ever had in your life? Pretend you
2: didn't have one in the one of those in the drawer. I'll just wait.
1: <laughs> in the drawer, I kept it in a display case. <laughs> but. Uh, this was really. I was actually kind of nervous because I'd never, I you know, I I I we'd never met before, and this was done via Skype, and we weren't going to be able to connect by locking eyes in any at any point, and so uh, I was kind of nervous. But this was really wonderful, and 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 honestly, anytime you know, anytime you feel like just. It doesn't really have to be for anything specific. I know a gun machine comes out in January, which people people should pick up. Um, and yes, please God, pick it up. Or They should go to WarrenEllis or at Warren Ellis on on Twitter. They should also buy it after they pick it up. They, they pick yeah, it
3: up, take they, it to a they
0: register.
2: Absolutely should I have yeah. a pony to feed? And then <laughs> <Yeah>. trade.
1: <laughs> God, I feel so I feel so bad for Warren Ellis. Fortunately, he fell asleep in a cave and became king of Mars. <laughs> uh, but uh, but. Honestly, you know, it, it's been it really fun talking. If you if you if there's any time where you're like, hey, you know what, I feel like calling in and just rapping about whatever, then please please feel free to do that whenever you want, Warren. Like just let me know I and we'll set would it up. I'd be happy to.
2: That is very kind of you. Thank I think you.
1: A, I think a recurring I think a recurring Warren Ellis uh, segment. Like honestly, if you if even if there's stuff that you're that you're writing that you want to work out and say out loud to people, if you want to just call in and even just do like a ten minute. Like, here's something that I'm sort of crafting, and you just want to hear it out loud and have us, you know, like, fuck around with it with you. That would be so much fun.
2: That would be fun for me because I'm in the middle of the next novel right now.
1: Jesus Christ. and, And
2: some of that I am still working out. So, you know. Well, That's not a bad idea. You,
1: you have my email, and you have an open invitation. And, um, and thank you for staying up late uh, to, to do this. And we'll, you know, we'll, get it up, uh, we'll get it up really soon, if not next week, then, then the week after.
3: It
2: will be my pleasure. Cool. And thank you very much. You made this very easy, guys.
1: Oh, thanks, Warren. Take care. Have a good night. Thanks, happy
2: nice to meet you. You yeah, too. Man. Thank you. Take Take
1: care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
4: Now leaving Nerdist.com.